Shalom, and welcome to Inside Israel News, your source for unbiased and thorough analysis of Israeli news, politics, and current events in the Middle East. I'm your host, Isaac Kite. Captain's Log Supplemental. This supplement is made for Israeli Independence Day, Yom Ha'atzma'ut, which is uh, arriving just at the time that I'm publishing this. So uh, if you're listening to it later, that's what this is about. This is about Israeli Independence Day, which also happens to be my birthday on the Jewish calendar, uh, comically enough. So uh, this uh, this Yom Ha'atzmaut is the 73rd anniversary of Israel's independence, and I am going to be uh, playing the national anthem here shortly and then translating it and uh, talking a little bit about Zionism and what it means, what Israel means to the Jewish people, what Israel means to me, and then a little bit about uh, Israel's war for, of independence. And at the end, I'll be playing a song by Yama, uh, Y-A-M-M-A, you can look up on YouTube. It is uh, from Tehillim, Psalm 104, a uh, song that they they play that uh, will offer you a little insight into Sephardic uh, Mizrahi culture of uh, Jews from the Middle East. A uh, little bit of uh, lute music and uh, and some fun singing. Anyway, good good stuff all around. So this episode's a little bit off the beaten path of what I usually do: news and and current events, uh, the election, and all of that. But I'm going to have a, a little bit of fun and just talk about Israel in a broad and general sense and go from there. So with that, this is my favorite version of Hatikva, the national anthem of Israel. It is available on YouTube. Uh, you'll find uh, this is the one that has the, the flapping Israeli flag as its avatar. And uh, it's kind of a, an original, an older version. Uh, very, uh, I think, very full of feeling. It really captures the, the feeling of the national anthem, although there are many different versions. Uh, typically, the uh, national anthem is sung twice, and often singers will put a, just a little bit more uh, verve into the second go-around. And uh, with that, I will say, enjoy Hatikva, and I'll be back with a translation and talk about Israel after that. Oh, 
as heartfelt and powerful a national anthem as you're going to find. The national anthem of Israel is a Hatikva, the hope. It's a, it's a beautiful song. really embodies the, the hope, <laughs> the spirit of Israel, a, a country that restores uh, the Jewish nation to its land. And uh, as it says, the hope of 2,000 years. This is uh, really, it really embodies the the idea of Jews being free from maltreatment and anti-Semitism uh, in our homeland. So uh, Hatikva was originally written as a nine stanza poem by a Jewish poet, Naftali Her- uh, Herz Imber. Imber was uh, Ukrainian by birth, and he uh, wrote this poem somewhere circa 1876. It eventually was put to a Romanian tomb about a decade later and served as an anthem for various Zionist congresses and in the Zionist movement before uh, becoming uh, Israel's anthem. It wasn't technically the official national anthem until 2004, but basically since 1949, it's it's been the, the anthem of Israel. The anthem begins, Kol od balevav penima, as long as the in the heart within, Nefesh Yehudi Homiya, the Jewish soul yearns, Ufate Miza Kadima, and toward the eastern edges onward, Ayin Litzion Sophia, the eye gazes toward Sion. Odlo Avda Tikvatenu, our hope is not yet lost, Hatikva Bachnoda Paim, the hope that is two thousand years old, Liod Amhofshi Beatsenu. The, to be free, a free nation in our land, Eretz Sion Yerushalayim, the land of Sion, Jerusalem. Uh, beautiful, beautiful national anthem there for Israel. All right, moving on. So what is, what is Zionism? Why Israel? What does it mean to the Jewish people? Um, the original concept of Zionism 
has been around for a long time, so it's not new. Jews have made various migrations back to uh, Jerusalem over the years. The Romans, of course, uh, destroyed the city in uh, 70 CE, and as a result, uh, the Jewish population was kind of forced out of the area, although Jews lived in what is now Israel, like Tiberias and, and other communities in the area, uh, they were they were not allowed to live in and around Jerusalem for a good number of years, and for a while there was nothing there. Uh, the Roman Emperor Hadrian had Aelia Capitolina built there to <clears throat> be the capital of a, a province of Rome, but uh, the Jews had been kind of forced out. So <clears throat> Jews came back in, in different groups over time, and it's always been a dream to return to Israel. But modern Zionism arrives... Uh, really originates with uh, Theodor Herzl, who was a, uh, he was a journalist in Austria in the mid-19th century, and he noticed this phenomenon of anti-Semitism, that wherever Jews go, by the very fact of our otherness, by the fact that we are Jews and not, you know, Austrians or French or German, uh, we, we set ourselves apart. And by setting ourselves apart and being other, being different, we naturally bring discrimination with us because no matter where we go, as he, as he noted in Europe especially, we're not quite that. You know, no matter how German a Jew is, they're still a Jew. No matter how French they are, at the end of the day, they're still a Jew. And in a lot of those countries, national identity is founded on essentially, originally, on the fact that you are German or French or or something uh, of the, the ethnic origin of that country. And while other people come in, at the end of the day, they are not that. Now, we're talking about the mid-19th century, so obviously a lot has changed in Europe since then. But in that time that he was writing, uh, that was his experience. And he's not wrong. Wherever Jews go, uh, people do maltreat Jews. So that's that's just a reality. Uh, I do rather wish that Hetzel had been able to see the United States <laughs> today. He might change his mind a little bit because uh, American culture, of course, is much more open and, and much more open minded about uh, different groups of people. And so as a small religious and s sort of an ethnic minority in America, in the United States, we don't really get the same kind of thing. There's certainly been some anti-Semitism over time, but by the mid-20th century, a lot of that had passed. Modern anti-Semitism has shifted, of course. Uh, most of Christians and most people in America have moved on, but uh, we get a small number of uh, lunatic fanatics uh, on the fringe uh, among the, the tiny microscopic number of white supremacists and neo-Nazis in the country who you know, believe there's some kind of vast Jewish conspiracy. And then on the other side of that, there's a lot of growing anti-Semitism on the left. Uh, college campuses are places where Jews are not safe to walk at night. Uh, they can be beaten or attacked. Uh, being a religious, zoo, uh, a religious Jew or being a Jew who supports Israel, a Zionist or a pro-Israel Jew, uh, is not uh, not okay as far as the American left is concerned. And so that's where a vast amount of the the anti-Semitism we get today is. And we get members of Congress who go around spreading conspiracy theories about Jews and uh, an entire political party that just looks the other way. But uh, for the most part, in terms of uh, living in society as a Jew, a, a ethnically Jewish, certainly, you know, we have a lot of people who are uh, of Jewish descent in America and they fit into secular cult culture without... Uh, much trouble. So it's kind of hard today for us to sit here and think, 
you know, well, you know, Herzl's saying wherever Jews go, they bring anti-Semitism with them. And we live in this tolerant, open society, uh, at least for the time being, where, you know, we, we love everybody. And it, you have to kind of go back to the mindset of the mid-19th century when everyone thought of nations of people as races. So you'll read from the time people talking about, you know, the German race, the the Anglo-Saxon race, and even Churchill continued to use that kind of language into the mid-20th century that dated though it was. But, you know, the, when people thought in those terms, you know, if you're part of the Anglo-Saxon race, then a Jew is not an Anglo-Saxon. A, a Jew is not a Frank. A, a Jew is not a German. So in, in Herzl's experience, that was the situation that he ran into. And his concern there was until Jews uh, form our own country and have our own place to live, Wherever we go, we're going to bring this with us. And so his concept was der Judenstaat, the Jewish state, the, the idea of creating a polity somewhere where they were you know, made up predominantly of Jews, by Jews and for Jews, so that we could uh, just live in peace among one another. He also envisioned a, a largely free market, uh, sort of capitalist entrepreneurial state that would allow Jews to prosper and uh, very much as uh, Zev Jabotinsky would later as also uh, describe, just a, a Jewish state of entrepreneurs and business leaders and, and thriving metropolises and just you know, a place where, where Jews could really be happy and, and prosperous. So that was the original idea. Eventually, Jews did start moving back to Israel in large numbers. In Herzl's time, he didn't really think that the country could be settled. It had become a backwater of the Ottoman Empire. There wasn't anything there. He went and toured the region. There weren't even wheeled carts being used. Uh, he had to ride on, on muleback uh, up, to, uh, up to Jerusalem from Jaffa. Uh, so uh, Jaffa, also called Jaffa. Anyways, he, so there was just a, it was nothing there. And he didn't think that was a good idea. So he actually pitched the idea of, say, uh, a bunch of Jews moving to Argentina or someplace like that so that we could found a Jewish state somewhere. You know, but in the long run, as Jews started talking about this idea of Der Judenstadt, the the fact is we're we're talking about the land that we all read about in our Torah and our our scriptures uh, every week in synagogue, and that land is Israel. So, uh, you know, Sion named after the the fortress of Sion, uh, reference to a particular part of Jerusalem, but in, in general kind of a, a way of talking about Jerusalem as a strong center of the Jewish people, and therefore uh, Zion, right? Therefore Zionism. And so this, this idea spread through the Jewish community in Europe and uh, in the Middle East, this idea of going back to Israel and, uh, you know, back to our land and repopulating it and making it a, a Jewish homeland, a paradise where Jews could live together in peace. <clears throat> and of course, there, Arab population there didn't have any antagonism toward them. Just we want to go live in our ancient land in peace. You know, obviously that was not an ancient homeland of the Arabs. The the ancient homeland of the Arabs is down in the Arabian Peninsula. Arabia, Arabs. Makes sense. Okay. So uh, the purpose was not to displace anyone. It was just, well, we'll all move there and, and things will be good. And for a while, the Ottoman Empire tolerated that. They tried to restrict it a little bit here and there. Uh, as we headed into the 20th century, because there were a growing number of Jews there, and they began to think, uh, well, you know, there's a bunch of Jews there, and they're not necessarily loyal to the Ottoman Empire, and, you know, is that a really a good thing? In 1917, General Allenby and the British Army came in and liberated the region from the Ottomans during the First World War, 
and uh, then it became, after the war, the British Mandate of Palestine, uh, a name they'd drawn from uh, originating with the, the word uh, Philistine, um, but they had drawn from the Roman name for the region. So uh, this was just uh, you know, just a name that was convenient that was there. It wasn't uh, the name of any people, wasn't really what the place was called. It's just what the Romans had happened to call it uh, because the Romans were trying to give it a name other than Judea, uh, which they uh, had crushed and stamped out and destroyed. They, they dug Jerusalem up to its foundation stones and buried it. And uh, Emperor Hadrian says he, you know, he came there. There was a fortress and uh, where there was a, a Roman garrison and uh, otherwise the place was plowed over. It was just fields growing grain. So that's, uh, you know, that's basically what awaited Jews when they started to return. Anyway, Jews formed uh, agricultural communities and the kibbutzim started. A kibbutz is kind of like a commune. Everyone kind of works together. And slowly but surely, Jews started moving back. Uh, by the 1930s, we got the uh, city of Jerusalem founded, uh, the city of Tel Aviv founded, uh, excuse me, a lot of people moving back to Jerusalem as well. Uh, new quarters of Jerusalem uh, were built outside the old city, and uh, there were uh, new communities popping up all over what is now Israel, where Jewish people were just building houses in the desert, literally. It started to try to control the mosquito population and make the place livable, tried to figure out how to bring back agriculture and irrigation because the place was a backwater. It was a desert. Uh, the, the mountains of Israel, Judea, Samaria, that area had been heavily forested in the past. So when you, when you read in, in the Tanakh, for example, in uh, the book of Yoel, it talks about uh, the trees, a fire burning the trees uh, around Jerusalem and this kind of thing because it was a heavily forested area. But in the uh, 16th century, the Ottomans lost a naval battle and had to rebuild their fleet very quickly. So they deforested the whole area in order to uh, build ships. So Jews began to plant trees again. And if you look at a map today, you can see that there are a lot more trees growing in the mountains now that Jews have returned and have begun planting trees and, and regrowing those forests. So that's uh, the, the idea of returning to Israel and having a place where Jews could live in peace and freedom. And it almost, I want to say, to the ironic degree, <laughs> the, the timing, because as the British mandate was, was established and uh, the Balfour Declaration given that, there, that Britain was going to help found a, a Jewish homeland in the United States, and Britain signed a treaty in 1924 saying that we, we were going to help uh, in that process of creating this Jewish state there. Uh, that treaty in part being to try to, the U.S. trying to prevent Britain from going back on its promise. In any case, we, we had all this, this stuff going on. And almost to prove Herzl right, in uh, this twist of ironic fate, just as we began to found Israel, the very reasons that Israel was necessary became painfully obvious to everyone uh, during the Holocaust. And uh, Jews who lived in Europe, who had watched their Polish or German uh, or Hungarian neighbors look the other way as they were carted off to concentration camps to be killed uh, in, uh, in massive numbers, uh, six million people, along with uh, five million others, you know, there were a total of 11 million people killed in the, in the mass exterminations. But uh, Jews were, the, were a majority of those people killed. And uh, this sort of industrial extermination 
uh, industrial scale extermination, it just becomes unconscionable. How do you how do you count six million people? And number of people have noted, you know, one person died six million times. You, you kind of have to look at it that way and think about the the scale of it. In any case, Jews wanted to return to. Israel. There had been an Arab uprising led by the Mufti al-Husseini, who was an ally of Hitler, uh, another story for another time, uh, in the British mandate of Palestine in years in the 30s, years before the war. And so the British had limited Jewish immigration to the region. And after the war ended, Clement Attlee became the prime minister of Britain. And uh, as with a lot of socialist left-leaning leaders, he was uh, naturally uh, pushing anti-Semitic policies. Uh, unfortunately, it's a common thread in, in socialism where, you know, you show me a socialist who is not a Jew by descent and I will show you an anti-Semite. Anyway, uh, he he opposed Jewish immigration and tried to prevent Jews from moving there. So Jews began to resist the British and Jews were trying to sneak in and this kind of thing. It, it created a nasty situation. Finally, the British decided to leave. And that's when uh, the opportunity arose to create uh, a Jewish state. Uh, to create a uh, new incarnation of Israel uh, in the modern times, similar to the ancient kingdoms that had once existed there. And when I get back from the break, I'll talk a little bit more about the events that surrounded that historic moment. As I promised in this week's episode, I'm going to speak just briefly on what, what does Israel mean to me personally? So we've talked about, you know, this is a place where Jews can live in peace, uh, is the idea, the goal. Again, not to displace anyone, but just to go back to our land and, and be able to live there uh, peacefully and pro in peace and prosperity. But uh, for me personally, so you know, growing up in a secular family, I didn't really do much uh, with religion or Israel or what have you until I became a teenager. When I was about 17, I started going back to synagogue. I became curious, you know, what does God want from me? What should I do? And uh, I had my choice. My, my family's a mixed family, so I had my choice of religions. If I wanted to follow any particular tradition, I could have gone. Uh, I could have gone basically anywhere in Christianity or Judaism. But I started attending various synagogues and trying out different uh, movements. And I just I found that I loved the Hebrew and I loved the ancient tradition. And so uh, I was going to stick with uh, with Judaism and and go forward from there. And as I. Um, became more involved in going to synagogue and that kind of thing. Obviously, the issue of Israel came up and I, I wanted to know more. So I had to go kind of learn it. So in, in a way, I have that experience uh, somewhere between the Baal Teshuvah and the convert. <laughs> so I just I didn't know anything. I, I felt really ignorant. And so I, I had to go educate myself. And as you can tell, I, I really went off the deep end. I, I learned and learned and learned. And I the more I learned and um I want to say with a skeptical eye. I didn't come into it with any kind of dogmatic sense of Israel's greatness or what have you. But as I, I read and read and read and listened and learned, the balance of the evidence became pretty clear that Israel was uh, the good guys, if you will. Uh, like eight and ten Americans, I, I side with Israel over the, uh, over the Arabs in the current conflict. And I'll talk about uh, some of that here in just a minute when I talk about the history of the War of Independence. So... I began to be active then in uh, on-campus pro-Israel groups and APAC, uh, the America-Israel Public Affairs Committee, and uh, people. Uh, I, I grew up in on the left coast in Santa Cruz, California, so uh, it's where people go when when San Francisco is too conservative. And <laughs> if you can imagine such a thing, in, in any case, uh, so I, I took a lot of heat for that uh, for 
for being pro-Israel. So I, I was, uh, I want to say I was uh, forged in fire when it came to these issues. But I spent a lot of time debating with people and, and opening my uh, opening eyes and, and opening minds and, and hearts and that kind of thing. But anyway, going, going to APAC and, and lobbying for Israel and, and being a supporter of Israel here in the U.S. Uh, had a... a a profound impact on me because I really began to understand from the other people I was with and from the things we were doing just how important this issue is, you know, just how important Israel is to to so many of us and that connection to the homeland that we're reading about every week. But it, it went deeper than that. I wanted to go see it for myself. Uh, after I got out of college, I had the opportunity to uh, get my MBA in Israel. I went to the Bar Ilan International uh, MBA program and earned my MBA in the fastest growing economy in the developed world. And uh, that's why when I was there, I got a, a, an opportunity to volunteer with Yoel Hassan, who was a member of Kadima, the chairman of the, uh, of the state control committee, which gave me some insight into Israeli politics and a chance to, to learn about all that stuff from the inside while I watch uh, from the window of the office that I worked in, uh, Bibi Netanyahu every morning going into the uh, going into the defense committee to make uh, to do the, his you know talk about defense issues, make his reports to the Knesset, and uh, for them to debate and discuss some of the uh, threats that were going on. Of course, that all happened behind closed doors in a secure room, uh, but I got to watch them come and go. That was that was where I was. Anyway, going to Israel, living in Ramat Gan, which is a mostly, you know, older Eastern European Jews, a lot of Romanians, a lot of Russians, uh, right next to a Haredi ultra-Orthodox community in Bnei Brak, and um, also the, the more secular, uh, I want to say upscale community of Givatayim, just outside of Tel Aviv, and thus being able to walk, <laughs> literally. I mean, it, the distances here... You know, Israelis think in, in smaller terms because they live there and then they're like, you walk to Tel Aviv. That's a long trip. Take the bus. But for me, I'm like, look, it's it's two kilometers. It's it's a short walk. I, I, like I, I walk out my front door and next thing I know, I'm at the ocean. I mean, it is kind of a fun thing. You think about scale of things, because, of course, you know, in, in the U.S., we drive everywhere. That's true. But we have just vast distances to go over. Uh, there are places where in Israel, where the, the distance from the ocean to the green line uh, the uh, the so-called armistice line is less than 20 miles. I mean, it's a, it's a short distance. So it's a small country. So it was nice to kind of walk around and, and be able to travel around and learn about the history. And being a geek, I'm going to, you know, Caesarea, Caesarea, you know, places like that, looking at uh, all the ancient sites. I wanted to see all of the, the ancient battlefields. And so I had a blast. So that's what... What what I living there, um, having you know friends who are who are like family to me, uh, getting to know the country, uh, really, it changed my perspective because on the one hand, while I had been active before in supporting Israel, it was still something that was far off, and now it became very real to me. Now I have, I think of Israel, I think of faces and names and happy experiences and wonderful restaurants I used to go to and my barber and the the people that I lived around and the people I went to school with. And, and this is a, it's a great country and the business uh, leaders that I got to meet and my professors and just, it's just an awesome place. But to be there and to see it for, for real, really galvanized 
me and my support for it. And not only that, I went out of my way to meet a lot of different people while I was there. I got to meet uh, various uh, Orthodox Christian leaders. I got to meet the Samaritans. I got to meet with various uh, religious leaders from different disparate Jewish movements, the Hasanishnikites, uh, various uh, Hasidic movements. And I, I just, I got my, wherever I could, I, I could get into a meeting with somebody, to meet with somebody, talk, listen to their unique perspective. I did, uh, including getting to, to spend some time with the Bedouins and talk to Israeli Arabs and get to understand their perspective. And they're, they're a unique group of people. And a lot of them, some of them do serve in the army and they, they're proud and patriotic uh, Israelis just as much as any Jewish Israeli is. Uh, there was a, an incident that I I didn't hear it directly, but it kind of uh, underscores what I heard from them. Where a uh, reporter asked a, an Israeli Arab and said, "You know, how do you you know how do you feel about the Israeli flag? It has this Jewish religious symbol on it." And, and the Arab turned to the reporter and said, "Well, you're from Britain, right? Uh, Jews in Britain look up and see a flag that has a bunch of crosses on it. How do they feel about it? You know, they're Brits, right? Or they're they're Jews who live in Britain, so that's that's the national flag." And that's how a lot of them feel about it. Yes, it's a Jewish country predominantly, but they live there and, and it's their home too. Uh, and as I, I mentioned in the past, the anecdote I heard from uh, a young uh, Bedouin man, uh, obviously in translation, thanks to a friend of mine who speaks Arabic, uh, the, uh, the anecdote that uh, for the Bedouins uh, living, living there in Rahat, in that little community, uh, they feel like Israel is is a very special place to them because the Egyptians, the Jordi, the Jordanians, they really don't treat the Bedouins very kindly. Uh, when they have a a problem with the Bedouins, they go out and they they beat people up, they shoot people. Uh, they don't they don't treat them fairly. In Israel, they get you know they they are much more just. They they arrest people who have either the individual who has committed a crime and that person faces justice rather than any kind of group punishment against the Bedouins. Uh, a lot of these Arab countries kind of treat the Bedouins the way that the Roma, the the gypsies, if you will, in Europe are treated. They're kind of um, stateless, classless people who are vulnerable to government maltreatment uh, and their their culture because they don't really respect borders. They just live out in the desert and whatever. They don't really think like you know settled people do. So a lot of times private property and things like that just don't mean the same things to them that they mean to other people. So again, they, you know, they, they feel very strongly about Israel. And so they, they're proud to serve in the military. Uh, a lot of the Bedouins, I was very surprised, asked, you know, who do you vote for? Thinking, oh, they probably vote for the Arab joint list or uh, various Arab parties. And like, you know, oh, we, we vote Likud. I, I almost fell out of my seat. Like, you vote for Likud. And like, yeah, yeah, Bibi Netanyahu. He does, uh, we don't like this. And we don't like that. But he, he generally, he does a good job. And so when I related that story back a while ago about the uh, few episodes back about the, the Bedouin leader saying, well, I vote for Likud, but I don't like the government's policies. I'd already heard that. I knew that. So I was able to uh, pass that along to you because that was the experience that I had. So that is Israel in a nutshell. It, it has been noted that when American Jews go to Israel, they tend to become very galvanized one way or the other. Either they're very pro-Israel or very anti for whatever ex reasons. Their experiences there, they, they uh, take it in. And, you know, when you, when you hear the rocket siren sound uh, and, and you think about people who are firing rockets into the country you live in to, you know, fish very, very, you know, out of hate, very facetiously to, to, to kill, to injure innocent people, 
uh, you really get a sense of what that conflict is about. So uh, that's my next topic, uh, the, the beginning of that conflict when the state of Israel was founded uh, that we uh, will call the Middle East conflict or the Arab-Israeli conflict that has, uh, is the, the lens, unfortunately, through which most people look at uh, that region. So I've done a little bit of setup talking about how the Zionist movement went and that there was an Arab revolt in the 30s and some of this stuff talking about Israeli history up to this point. I want to make a quick point about demographics and uh, such just before we would, I jump in here with the uh, war for independence. In 1920, the British conducted a census of the region and they found that about there were about 700,000 people living in the British Mandate of Palestine, which ran from what is most of what is now Israel, including uh, what the international press calls the West Bank and uh, also the Gaza Strip. So that, that whole area, Israel and, and all of that territory, had about 700,000 people, of whom about 10% were Jews, and the, the other 90% were uh, either Arabs or, or mixed race of some sort, the way the British characterized that. Uh, curiously, about 10% of the population were Christians as well. So you had a large Christian population there. Uh, a lot of the Eastern Orthodox and uh, Maronite Catholic populations in the Middle East get forgotten, in, uh, sadly, in a lot of the people's thinking and politics about uh, the region. So at the time, about eight-tenths, you know, 80% of the 700,000 people who lived there were Muslim Arabs living in uh, the British Mandate of Palestine in 1920. So you can tell, you know, about 70, 75, 76,000 Jews who had moved to the region by that time. Now, obviously, the British had intended, thanks to the Balfour Declaration, to create a Jewish homeland there, and Jews began to arrive in much larger numbers. And what the, the untold story, so the, I want to say a lot of the, the opponents of Zionism or, or of Israel will say, you know, oh, all these Jews started moving to the region and taking over... Yes, but the untold story is that the population was growing in various demographic groups uh, because, uh, again, by uh, 1940, 20 years later, we see that the demographics have changed. By that time, there were about 1.9 million people in uh, the British Mandate of Palestine, and only about a third of them were Jewish, about 650,000 Jews living there at the time, and the rest who were Arab or Christ, uh, Arab Muslim or Arab Christian or some form of mixed race. Again, according to the British definitions uh, that, they, uh, that they were using at the time. So, you know, we just went from 700,000 people to 1.9 million people, and a third of them are Jewish, right? So the Jewish population rose very rapidly. That is true. So, you know, we go from like 76,000 people up to about 650,000 people. So, you know, we've had uh, over half a million Jews move there, but the Arab population has increased as well, right? We're talking about, you know, about 550,000 uh, Muslims living in the region, and all of a sudden, now they're uh, 1.2 million, right? Where did that other 700,000-odd Arabs come from, right? And this is, this is somewhat the untold story of the region, that as Jews moved to the region, as Jews moved to the British Mandate of Palestine, and it became more prosperous, large numbers of Arabs moved from Egypt, Saudi Arabia, Lebanon, Syria, and other countries, Iraq, and, and to find jobs, to, to seek prosperity there. 
And also the Mufti al-Husseini, who was, uh, again, an ally of Hitler, uh, had called on a lot of uh, Muslims and Arabs to move to the region to fight Jews, to be part of his armies in the effort to uh, destroy the Jews. Uh, it was brought up at the Nuremberg trial by uh, General Keitel and a few others that al-Husseini had been rabidly lobbying for a final solution to the Jewish question, that he was one of the people who really drove the idea of extermination of the Jews rather than just their imprisonment in ghettos or uh, their their segregation from society as the Nazis had done. So he was he was a really nasty anti-Jewish person, <laughs> as anti-Semites go. And I, I hate to use that term for Arabs because Arabs are also Semites, but um, he certainly sought the extermination of Jews. In any case, um, He's the one leading the, the Arabs, essentially, at that time. You'll hear a bunch of different people trying to minimize his role uh, there. But I mean, this was this was the most popular Arab leader in that region at the time. You can't say that he wasn't the one uh, leading uh, their efforts. In any case, there's this, this large number, this large influx of Arabs from outside of the region into the region. That's where you get people like Yasser Arafat, who was of Egyptian descent. Right. So in, in those 20 years, you get a large number of Arabs moving into the region and uh, you see a large number of Jews moving into the region. And as I've just talked about those numbers, about equal numbers. In fact, slightly more Arabs moved to the region than Jews in that time. So as we get set up for conflict here, what we've got is a large influx of Jews coming from Europe. There are going to be uh, millions of Jews now <laughs> moving from Europe because they just don't feel comfortable or safe there anymore. Uh, and uh, the Arabs obviously are not happy with that. When the British decided to leave, the United Nations put forward their partition plan that would create a Jewish state and an Arab state within the boundaries of British-mandated Palestine, uh, roughly the two-state solution that was offered uh, to Yasser Arafat in uh the 1999 and 2000 negotiations with uh, Bill Clinton and Ehud Barak that, is, that are detailed in Dennis Ross' uh, great book, uh, The Missing Peace, P-E-A-C-E, The Missing Peace, that uh, he talks uh, in detail about all the different ins and outs of the negotiations that took place there and how they fell apart. In any case, uh, we so we arrive at this this point. There are a large number of Jews coming. The British didn't want them. Now we've decided, the UN has decided, there will be a Jewish state established there. And uh, David Ben-Gurion, the leaders of the Zionist movement in Israel, are starting to talk about establishing a state. And everybody told them not to. The State Department warned, oh, you're just going to tick off the Arabs. They're, you're just going to start a war, right? Founding the State of Israel was going to start a war. Well... Ben-Gurion went ahead and in May of 1948, uh, on the day on the Jewish calendar that is now coming up, Yom Ha'atzma'ut, um, this, uh, this wonderful event took place. And I, I walked by in Tel Aviv many times, although I, I really ought to have gone in uh, at some point, but I, I just, I was going somewhere, but I, I walked by several times the, the building where he uh, made the announcement where you can watch the famous recording of the announcement of the state of Israel. Well, Israel declared independence and uh, they declared the state of Israel because they assumed that the United Nations and, and that partition plan would be generally accepted. And yes, they knew that there would probably be war. Well, al-Husseini and the, the 
uh, Arabs in the British Mandate of Palestine rose up to attack, but also six Arab countries declared war on Israel. An Egyptian army came into Israel. A Jordanian army came into Israel. The Iraqis attacked. The Saudis attacked. The Lebanese, everybody attacked Israel. Nobody wanted Israel to exist. And when we talk about attacking Israel, um, not all of these armies, uh, but the larger number of them weren't just there to destroy the state of Israel. They were there to remove the Jewish population. When I say remove, I do not mean like put on ships and, and put to sea. Uh, they were they were there on a campaign of extermination. Again, al-Husseini, who was a significant leader in this time, uh, was not a man who was going to stop short of a final solution. He lobbied for the Germans to uh, push a final solution, and he intended to enact it there. And a number of Jewish communities were completely annihilated, uh, men, women, and children, uh, when they were captured by Arab armies. Jews had to flee before them. Uh, there are claims by a number of Arabs that certain Arab communities uh, faced the same kind of retaliation. These are disputed by different people. Uh, there were also several different groups at work, some more hardline uh, Israeli uh, leaders. Uh, the, there was the Igun, the more far-right uh, militia, if you will, versus the Haganah, which was the, uh, the, the group led by Ben-Gurion that was a little bit more like national, more uh, secular and... and more organized. Eventually, they were all kind of merged into the Israeli Defense Forces and uh, not allowed to operate independently. And then Israel was uh, more professional and more organized. In any case, claims back and forth about these things. Uh, but uh, generally speaking, uh, where Israel went, the where where they the territory that they captured, the the Arabs who lived there, if they stayed and and didn't resist and didn't have any problems, they stayed. And life was good, and they became Israeli citizens, and Arab women voted for the first time in Israel. Uh, but a lot of them felt the need to flee and leave. And I wouldn't be too surprised that those who moved there to fight felt that they had to flee. And uh, a large number just didn't want to live in a Jewish state. So this is where we get this refugee group of people who would come to brand themselves as Palestinians. And, you know, they're... <laughs> There, there is no nation of Palestine. There never was. There has never been. It was the, the name of a Roman province there, where, which was largely you know, Roman and Greek. Uh, but it's based on the Philistines. The, the Philistines are a people not at all related to the Palestinians that live there now, not an Arab group. So there was no nation there. A lot of the Arabs who lived in the region thought of themselves as Syrian. Uh, a lot of Syrian names like Abbas. Are, are still common. Mansour Abbas, prominent politician in Israel now. Uh, these these are people who kind of saw themselves as being sort of an offshoot of Damascus. Uh, they weren't they weren't part of a nation. And again, they've been part of the Ottoman Empire for a number of years. So uh, in since then, we've seen the creation of this sort of faux nationality of Palestinian, and that's why I always I guess I put that in air quotes that you can't quite see because there are no. Palestinian people. There's never been this nation of Palestine that existed. If a two-state solution is ultimately enacted, that will be the first time that there will be this nation of Palestine. It will be creating an entirely new thing. Anyway, end of rant. So uh, this war kicked off. It was a nasty war. Over 6,000 Israelis died in the War of Independence, 15,000 wounded. It was Israel's worst conflict because the Israelis were fighting more or less on equal terms 
and this wouldn't be the only time they fight on equal terms, but on equal terms and without a lot of support. They didn't have heavy artillery. Eventually, they got some tanks and some equipment uh, from uh, Charles de Gaulle and a few others. They were able to get uh, old, <laughs> you want to talk about ironies, uh, Czech-made uh, Czech Messerschmitts <laughs> to, uh, that were made for the Germans, I kid you not, that were surplus. Uh, the, the Czechoslovak government was willing to give that, give them uh, to Israel, so... Israel got those. They got a few cargo planes from the U.S. that had to be flown by American Jewish pilots over to Europe and then eventually down to Israel. And the final destination couldn't be known because U.S. policy was not to arm the Israelis at the time. And uh, the, the Israelis fought tooth and nail in this desperate struggle. Jerusalem was attacked by the Jordanians pretty quickly and besieged. And the... the I want to say... So... The city's kind of divided. The old city and the eastern half were captured by the Jordanians, and uh, a number of synagogues in the uh, eastern side were bombarded uh, by Jordanian artillery, and they they just they destroyed the the Herva, which is, is literally that's the name, the ruins. They they destroyed the the ruins there, and they bombed the Karaite synagogue, which was the oldest synagogue in Jerusalem there, and several other places. So a lot of Jewish holy sites were damaged. And uh, they also uh, surrounded the western side of the city, which was the, the you know, the, there's the, the German sector and the, the little, a lot of little enclaves there. But basically the, I want to say western, not just geographically, but like the European settlements and uh, a lot of uh, the Jewish uh, settlements in the area in, in the western enclave. And they were besieged. They were cut off from the rest of Israel. And the Israeli army, if you drive up to Israel now along the highway, you'll see monuments to the large numbers of IDF soldiers who died trying to fight their way up the hill to bring food and uh, supplies to relieve Jerusalem. Ultimately, they had to build an entirely new road on an entirely new route in order to resupply them. And, and that way they were able to hold out. And that way, uh, Jerusalem was able to be part of Israel, at least part of Jerusalem. And the uh, uh, when the Jordanians got to Latrun, which is a, a tall, there's a monastery at Latrun on, a, on this tall hill that overlooks the valley below. And they used that as a, uh, an artillery post and, and had their machine guns pointing down and they were able to prevent the Israelis from recapturing that, uh, that position. And that also reinforced their control of Jerusalem. So uh, there's a lot of this intense fighting. There was some early fighting along the Lebanese border and in the north, and then it kind of moved down to Jerusalem there. Uh, eventually, the Jordanians weren't able to advance any farther, but neither were the Israelis. Uh, they were able to hold out in Jerusalem, but not uh, reclaim any of the city. And uh, Ben-Gurion ultimately made the decision to go southward through the desert to what is now Eilat and secure the southern part of the country. And by 1949, an armistice was agreed to, and the war came to uh, a rather sudden conclusion. And that's where these the, this green line comes from, of where the what the international press calls the West Bank, what is more accurately termed uh, the Shomron and Yehuda, uh, Judea and Samaria, uh, the the hills uh, in which Jerusalem is in the center, uh, in uh, central Israel, right. And this is where this, this green line comes from. Ultimately, as we know, in the, in the Six-Day War, Israel would reclaim that territory and capture the Gaza Strip and the Sinai and, and make peace with Egypt down the road. But uh, this, was, this is where all of this ended and these armistice lines were drawn. 
And that was the, the circumstance in which Israel had to be founded in this tiny strip of land, uh, excluding what uh, the Yehuda and, and Shomron, uh and with only part of Jerusalem. As a, a family anecdote, my, uh, my in-law grandparents, my wife's grandparents, visited Jerusalem in the 19, late 1950s. And they, uh, they noted that where you enter uh, the old city now through the main gate, not the, uh, not the Yaffa gate, which is to the south, but the, the main gate where you, you kind of enter from the western side. Uh, they were, there was a market there on the Israeli side, and there was a minefield between that market and uh, the Jordanian-controlled eastern part, the ancient part of the city. And uh, they noted that while they were there, uh, they heard this big explosion and uh, everyone looked out, of course, you know, what's going on? A chicken had wandered into the minefield and got itself blown up. And this, is, this was the situation that prevailed in Israel uh, until the, the Six-Day War, when Israel would liberate Jerusalem and return uh, control of the ancient city to the Jewish people. Uh, again, the, the Arabs who lived in Israel, those who stayed, uh, including the greater part of those who had originally lived there before the influx of people from the outside, uh, not all, but most of the people who lived there before just stayed and they became Israeli citizens and they voted and they've had their own political parties and representation since then. So that's, uh, that was what resulted. And now, uh, 73 years after Israel was founded, Israel is finally uh, gaining greater security, uh, dealing with the Iran question, of course, but uh, starting to fulfill that dream of a peaceful, prosperous, safe place uh, for Jews to live. And honestly, since the Second World War, uh, which really drove home why there needs to be a place for Jews to live where we can be safe, uh, we've seen rising anti-Semitism in Europe, uh, growing anti-Semitism on the American left now, uh, today. Uh, just the world is very much not a safe place for Jews to live. And whenever there is trouble, uh, whether, you know, with Ethiopia, when there were problems there, we were able to bring the Jews out of there. When the Iron Curtain fell, Jews who had been persecuted in the Soviet Union and the uh, Warsaw Pact were able to flee that persecution to move to Israel and start new lives. There is a place now where Jews can go. Uh, where they will not be mistreated for being Jews. And there are plenty of problems within Israel in terms of the social issues. And I've talked about the need for greater integration. But at the end of the day, it's a safe place, a home for Jews. There's one tiny little Jewish country in the world uh, that is ultimately a place where Jews can be safe. The Arabs and Muslims have many, 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 many countries <laughs> that spread from uh, the Pacific and Asia all the way across Africa that uh, are safe places for Muslims to live. Uh, Europeans and Christians have safe places to live. Buddhists have safe countries to live in. But uh, in terms of where Jews can go, there's that one tiny little place that ultimately is set aside for uh, a safe, prosperous, uh, free, and uh, peaceful Jewish state. With that, we will go to Yama as they sing uh, the Tehillim, the Psalm 104 for us and uh, enjoy uh, some wonderful Middle Eastern music in, uh, in the Jewish character, and uh, have a, a wonderful and great Yom Ha'atzma'ut, and uh, just, just think about 
the implications again of this this wonderful situation where we have a free uh, Israel, uh, a home for the Jews. With that, I will say goodbye. Lahitrot.
Thank <laughs> you. 